Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios is Steve Eisman. He's a portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. Great to have you with us here uh, once again. And I suppose we should start with uh, bank earnings. We had three major banks reporting uh, last week, two to come. Uh, tomorrow we have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh, as well. Let's just take stock of what we've seen uh, thus far. Earnings have come in line with uh, expectations. Of course, there's some quirkiness to third quarter earnings as well. What have you been watching as, uh, as the bank earnings have been coming in? Um, I've been ignoring them as yeah. much as possible. <laughs> For what? Uh, for what reason? Do explain. They're completely irrelevant. Yeah. How so? You know, the bank earnings will be whatever they'll be. They're very similar to the second quarter. Um, you know, the analysts will print what they print about who did a little better, who did a little worse. It's completely meaningless because the big story is the deregulatory story, and that's that's going to be coming down the pike over the next six to nine months. Let's dig into that story a, a bit. Uh, a few months back, the Treasury Department released um, its its first round of <laughs> reports on on regulation, uh, how it sees regulation, what what it intends or hopes to do with regard to, to regulation. How clear a message on that front have we gotten from from this administration? We can talk a bit about what Gary Cohn had to say over over the weekend, but uh, is there clarity from this administration about how it would like to see that terrain change? Well, it's, it's as clear as day. Um... You know, I, I wear two hats. I wear the hat of I'm Amer- an American citizen, and this is what I would do if I was, God forbid, in charge. Um, and then there's the hat of I'm not in charge, and it's very clear to me what the regulators are going to do. What does that mean for bank stocks? I mean, if I was in charge, I would change very little. But I'm not in charge, <laughs> and as, as is very obvious. Um, and this is an administration that comes up with excuse after excuse about why Dodd-Frank is bad. And they're not going to be able to change, actually change Dodd-Frank from a legislative perspective. So they're going to do it through the back door, through the regulatory process, because you know, Dodd-Frank leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Um, you know, the prior regime under the Obama administration was very, very strict about the banks. They took leverage down enormously. They interpreted the Volcker rule extremely strictly. Um, and you're going to see a, a, a partial reversal of what has happened. We're not, we're not going to go anywhere close to where we were pre-crisis. You know, just to give you a couple of numbers, Citigroup used to be levered 33 to 1. Mm-hmm. Today it's levered 10 to 1. You know, my expectation is over the next few years maybe it goes to 13, 14 to 1, which would not be a calamity, um, but it would certainly make Citigroup a lot more profitable. And that's the direction we're going to go in. It's going to happen in a very bureaucraties, technocratic, complicated way. So it's going to be very hard for um, politicians to complain about it because they won't understand it. How, and how, that's intentional. Yeah. How, how quickly can that happen? I, I look at the, the way that Dodd-Frank came into being. Uh, having lived in Washington, I, I <laughs> for, for a time, was noting the thousands and thousands of pages of comments letter. Uh, implementing these rules, going from draft to draft to draft to final rule, took a lot of, of time. Uh, if there is a lot of bureaucraties, as, as you put it, does does that slow down this process at all? How, no, how quickly all. can this it's, come into play? Um, <coughs> it'll start to happen very quickly, but it's going to take about four years to actually happen. 
And what I mean by that is the Fed regulates the banks through the annual stress test. Um, let's just say I think that starting next year they're going to grade on an easier curve. Mm -hmm. And so you will see a higher percentage of stock buyback. And you'll see – but but they're not going to let the banks buy back 300% of their net income. You know, this year you're able to buy back 100%. Next year I think there'll it'll be something like 125%. So levers are going to start to inch up. Mm -hmm. Emphasis on inch. So, you know, it's going to take about a three to four years to, to sort of mm -hmm. move the leverage anywhere in any meaningful sense. Do we understand how big the banks are? One of the things I've found over the years in the media is is – there's a complete misunderstanding of the scope and scale of these beasts. Uh, revenue for J.P. Morgan, $96 billion. Revenue for Citigroup, $70 billion. Operating income, 23 plus 34. Between the two of them, they have something like $57 billion of operating income down the income statement. Is that your advantage as an investor because we really don't understand the sheer mass of these beasts? I don't know if that's you know people like to focus on that a lot. Um, you know they're big because the economy's really big. I mean, so I, I don't pay all that much attention to it. You know, one of the reasons why the big banks are so big today is is that during the height of the crisis, um, the regulators basically begged some of the larger banks to buy some of the other institutions. So Wells Fargo bought Wachovia. Um, you know, on and on and on. J.P. Morgan is bigger because it bought Bear Stearns, and mm -hmm. I care which other institution it bought, but it bought something else. Um, so uh, we're sort of stuck with it. But I, I don't focus all that much on the size issue. I focus much more on the leverage issue. Are we going to see our regional bank mergers? The 20, I think 30, if we do, you're going to have to first. So the stress test starts at fifty billion in assets. Mm -hmm. So anybody in the stress test. But meaning fifty billion up, ain't merging. Uh, my expectation is that that lev that number will probably go up to something yeah. like one hundred fifty to two hundred billion, and when that happens, you'll begin to see some mergers yeah. of some some fairly significant size banks. But and that's the first thing that has to happen. And to give you an idea off the of fifty billion and the path to two hundred billion, David. Citigroup's total assets are one thousand eight hundred eighty-nine billion versus two hundred billion. That's the, the again the size issue is huge. I know that you and Tom were talking on on TV about these comments that Gary Cohn made over the weekend at this uh, Group of Thirty confab in in Washington D.C. He uh, sounded a clarion about clearing. Uh, he thought that that's particularly risky at this point. A couple of weeks back, we had the, the new chairman of the uh, CFTC sitting in the seat you're sitting in uh, now, and um, he he painted a fairly rosy picture of his institution and the work that it's doing while commenting on the, the size, the immense size of the, the derivatives marketplace. Uh, how at risk is that apparatus, that regulatory apparatus, and how far have we come from the financial crisis to now in terms of the, the power imbued uh, into the, the CFTC and its, its ability to regulate that, that massive space? You know, it's hard. this is not my area of expertise. Sure. Um, you know, I think the derivative market is safer today than it was. You know, the the the, the derivatives that I mean, there are lots of different kinds of derivatives. There's there's interest rate swaps, which I don't think anybody really has a problem with. Um, the area that was that was the problem was credit default swaps, and that's a lot smaller today than it was. I mean, I, I give you an example. Um, in 2016, between the end of January 
and February 15th, the credit default swap spreads on Deutsche Bank went from 100 basis points to 300 basis points. And people started to freak out about that because that's an awfully big move and reminded people of the crisis a little bit. And what they didn't know at the time was that the volume that was traded on that huge move was $75 million. Mm. Now, and during pre-crisis on such a move, the amount that would have been traded would have been $10 billion. So it just gives you an idea of how much smaller the, the credit default mm-hmm. swap market is today. Steve, thanks for the visit. Steve Eisman with us, New River Berman, uh, today as we uh, look at bond markets and uh, make note of his optimism. <laughs> um, overall, his optimism. He also did not mention when Selena Gomez will appear with us to <laughs> speak about Richard Thaler. And still, still waiting. waiting. Still waiting, waiting for that uh, <clears throat> reply we're, on Twitter. We're we've reached out. Yeah. People have talked to people. Yeah. Is She's busy touring go. schedule. Well, I was looking up Oklahoma here, David Gurr, the, the presidential We've vote. From South Pacific to Oklahoma. And, yes. And I, <laughs> um, it, I, I pres, uh, Secretary Clinton got 29% of the vote, which. Uh, uh, the president got 65% of the vote, and Mr. Johnson of the L party got 6% of the vote. But I find it interesting that Secretary Clinton got less than 30% mm. of the vote. I did not know that. Eager to bring in now uh, the former U.S. senator from Oklahoma. He served a, a decade in the U.S. Senate, a medical doctor turned congressman, then Senator Tom Coburn. Joining us now on our phone lines, Tom, quickly before I bring in the uh, the senator, one of my favorite things about him was uh, in 2015, as his retirement date approached, he could tick off how many days he had left until he was able to leave the Capitol a complex. Uh, great to speak with you this morning, Senator Coburn. And let me ask you, as you've observed Washington since you left over these last two years, how much has, has changed? How much is the story of dysfunction, uh, of uh, government inaction, the same as it was when you left in 2015? Oh, I, I think it's the same. The last two years uh, that I was in the Senate, there were seven amendments that were considered on the floor. Uh, I mean, you know, and I had several of those. Uh, actually, that was the last year. The year before that, I think there were 12. Uh, so the Senate had been shut down by Harry Reid because they didn't want to take hard votes. Uh, and so it, it's a disease that both the Republicans and the Democrats have is the next election is more important than the future of our country. And there are exceptions to that in both parties. Uh, but by and large, the vast majority of career politicians are more interested in the next election than they are in terms of fixing the problems. And the reason, the way you know that is who's working on the uh, Medicare default that's coming or the Social Security default that's coming or the, the Social Security disability is already defaulted and we're stealing from regular Social Security now. Who, who's working on those things? Nobody. When, when, and so it means what they're doing is short-term thinking uh, that is politically beneficial to one party or the other. And in the long run, all the rest of America, no matter which party is, loses. And that's why I left. You, it, nothing was happening there that was going to fix the real diseases, the real disease of our country, which is we're spending money we don't have. We promise benefits that we can't pay. 
And nobody wants to fess up and start addressing that. How much of this is the responsibility of, of leadership? You mentioned uh, Senator Reid there a few moments ago. Now Mitch McConnell's in office, and in these recent days we've heard from a number of conservative groups saying he needs to go. Uh, the Republican Party in the Senate shouldn't be led by, by Senator Mitch McConnell. It's time for some, some new blood, some new uh, leadership. How confident are you that if he were to leave, if somebody new were to lead the party in the Senate, we might see some of the changes you describe? I'm not. I'm not confident of that. I'm not sure. It, you know, it, I would tell you that the the vast majority of the Senate is career politicians. Uh, that's what they went into. I mean, they may have some limited work experience very early in their careers, but most of them, that's all they've ever done. So I'm. I'm not certain that'll happen. I think. You know, we're 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 divided geographically. We're divided uh, uh, socially. We're divided fiscally. Uh, people who pay a small amount of tax think their taxes are too high. Uh, people who pay a whole lot of tax think their taxes are too high. But nobody's asking the question, what's the tax that's going to come on our children and grandchildren by their inaction right now? Senator- and it's going to be it's amazing the amount. You know, it's $124 trillion of unfunded liability that's going to be due over the next 50 years. I mean, think about that. Well, Senator, I I think one of the great things about you in an oddity and rarity among human condition, including uh, our lovelies on Capitol Hill, is the idea you went back and got a medical degree at age 35. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. I I mean, that's something I think a lot of people look at and go, are you kidding me? That's just outstanding. Where, Where do we go to get to compromise needed for these big pieces of legislation right now. Monday morning, we're looking at the failure of NAFTA. We're looking at some form of regurgitation of the Affordable Care Act and the mystery of tax reform. And, and the nation, all of our listeners of all political persuasions, are beg- begging for doers like you. Are they left standing on Capitol Hill? No, I, look, I, health care is going to fix itself, and that's because greed conquers technologic difficulty. And, and what we know is one out of every three dollars spent in health care today doesn't help anybody, doesn't prevent them from getting well, doesn't, doesn't prevent them from getting sick, and doesn't cure them when they, once they are. So that's about $1.3 trillion. And the one thing that's never happened since before World War II is we've never had real market forces working because there's been no price discovery, yeah. Tom. And, and so one of the things I would suggest, if the Congress is going to do anything, just mandate price uh, transparency mm-hmm. everywhere in Well, do, then everywhere. Do, you, do you laud the president for pushing this debate back to people like you? Sure. I, look, uh, I, I travel around talking about this all the time. I know a company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is saving a quarter of a million dollars a month right now just based on price transparency. Based on an app that somebody developed to give them price transparency for their employees. And so, so you know, that's that's three million bucks a year in their health care costs. And so if what I my experience, Tom, is I delivered about, oh, I don't know how many hundred Amish babies and took care of Amish families. And they always bought health care about 35 or 40% less than everybody else because they went and found out prices before they bought. And so if we would just have price transparency, 
all of a sudden, you know, uh, Brookings put out a, uh, an article in late April about the lack of competition of the large hospital chains and how they increase the cost and how we ought to have a uh, significant antitrust activity going after the large both nonprofit and profit-based hospitals and what that would do. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission has said the best care in the country at the lowest price is the physician-owned hospitals. They've been banned under the Affordable Care Act. I mean, let's let markets work, and if we would, then what we would start seeing is ways for people to figure out how to buy it cheaper. What do you to say and to we, the... And we need a safety net. I'm not denying that we need a safety net, and we can do that, but we don't... You know, what we need is the prices to come down, and transparency in terms of price discovery will force a lot of that. What do you say to the, the individual who has been uh, relying... On those cost-sharing subsidies, we see the president kicking this over to Congress. It's up to them now whether or not to appropriate that money. But there is some concern that's not going to happen. You described the inaction on on Capitol Hill. Uh, Is that person not imperiled by what's happened here? Yes, they are. But here's a couple of things that are happening. Number one is they can lower their cost by raising their deductible even further. And if you had price discovery, most of that expense isn't going to be paid. Uh, I'll give you an example. The, the typical hospital-based MRI for the spine is about 4000 bucks. In a freestanding uh, clinic that does imaging, it's about 500 So you're seeing about a seven- to eight-fold increase in cost. So if, in fact, they could actually see what things cost, they're out of pocket. The other thing that's happening is direct primary care. Um, and, and, David, direct primary care for a family of four is about $2,600 a year. That's mm. everything except your hospitalization. So let them buy a, let them buy a hospitalization only policy. And that's about half of what the average deductible is today. And they're well on their way to getting preventative care, shots, immunizations, getting stitched yeah. up, getting broken arm. In other words, uh, markets <clears throat> will work if we will allow right. And then we can create a real safety uh, net. For those that don't have the means. Right. But remember, this promise on Medicaid isn't going to last because we're not going to have the money to make it last. One final question, if we could, Senator, very quickly here. How is the support for the president in the president's Oklahoma? Is the support wavering? Is it solid? No, I think it's base. What, what he's done is create a real division of between what he says and what the press says. And, of course, most of the time they don't believe the press. I'm not sure they all the time they believe him. But I would tell you, it kind of throughout the country, what you see is those people who voted for him, even though at times they're embarrassed, they're still like the things that right. they're doing. The good senator from Oklahoma heard Tom's talk of the Sooners agreed to stay with us here for another block on Bloomberg surveillance. Uh, senator Tom Coburn, former Senator Tom Coburn, with us on our phone lines. I know you were on the Homeland Security Committee, Senator, when you were when you were in the in the Senate, and I wanted to ask you just uh, how you've observed uh, the fallout from these storms uh, in the Caribbean and uh, and and uh, what you make of the government response so far. The president now uh, nominating somebody, intending to nominate somebody to be the next uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. Well, I think you know they learn from the the large tragedy in the previous Houston and New Orleans uh, uh, hurricane. Uh, The problem in Puerto Rico really wasn't getting the stuff there. It was getting it distributed once it got there. Uh, And there just weren't capable drivers, evidently, uh, to do it. But I think overall, I'd I'd give Homeland Security a good rating on how they responded, how they pre-staged things, knowing that it was coming, and how they how they've got it uh, dispensed. There's a long time to go, a long way to go in both Houston and uh, uh, the southern Florida and uh, uh, 
Puerto Rico. But overall, I think, you know, those aren't easy things. Government sometimes has tasks to do things that are very, very difficult. Something that, that appears to be very difficult has been the relationship between uh, the Congress uh, and the president over these last uh, few months. And I know that you enjoyed a, a fairly good relationship with the previous uh, president. What, what advice would you give uh, this current president about working, how, how to work with Congress? How do you make that relationship uh, better? Is it piecemeal? Is it going to the golf course one by one with, with members of the Senate? Or is there a, a better way to understand how each of these institutions works and should work together? Well, I, you know, I, first of all, Donald Trump's a very complex, uh, complicated guy, and uh, uh, it doesn't look like he's going to he, – learning theory doesn't appear to work with him in terms of he does something good and then steps on it, does something good and steps on it. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think you just got to take you here's, – here's a guy that's going to pop off and probably not smartly, but still does it and uh, seems to recover from his base anyway uh, when he does it. I, you know, I, look, deference and keeping your mouth shut is oftentimes – I had a great yeah. deal of problem with that myself, by the way. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, the real question is what are people's motives? And when you get into question the motives, then what you, your assumption is is uh, – you're, you, you don't have that same motive, and I'd say most people uh, have well are well intentioned in the Congress. Uh, sometimes their politics uh, gets in the way of that, and I think you know what you do is you count to ten before you react, and we haven't seen that much either from the president or other people that he's talking to. Does Oklahoma uh, does Oklahoma have a sanctuary city? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I was going to say. They don't. How do we get your part of the, your neck of the woods back together with other necks of the woods identified by sanctuary cities? How do we Here, reattach the, America? Well, the, the, Tom, that's a great question. Uh, they're, but they're not looking at the real disease. They're looking at the symptoms. Uh, the disease is rule of law. And what people in Oklahoma say, we're not anti-Hispanic. We're not anti-anybody. But if you have a law, either change it and don't enforce it to eliminate it. But if it's on the books, enforce it. And uh, former President Obama was really bad about that. He, they deferred on a lot of things that were not legal. You know, they just didn't enforce them. And so what happened was, is you got this big upright. I'll never forget the first time I ran for the Senate. One of the things I heard the most was is, why isn't the rule of law being enforced? Because here's what ultimately happens. <clears throat> when the average American sees that the federal government doesn't enforce the laws that are on the book, then all of a sudden they start applying that to themselves. Well, right. if it doesn't apply to them, then, then these laws don't apply to me. And you have this breakdown. And, and it's one of the key things that allows a republic to survive is confidence in the rule of law. So it's, it's not – you- you know, it's not an issue of race. It's an issue right. of rule of law. Would, would you and I think that's the problem. Would you suggest that your competition, the Democrat Party, will come up with a new Democrat Party that will tilt back towards the center, as so many uh, suggest will happen? Well, I think both need to do that a little bit. Uh, I think they need to come back with the realization that, you, you know, the Bernie Sanders movement, who's going to pay for the student loans and Medicare for everybody? Nobody. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a pipe dream. It's not out there. The, mm-hmm. the, the capability to fund that isn't there. 
So you can think that, oh, this is wonderful, but the reality is, is we can't do that. Uh, and the markets aren't going to let us do that. Uh, the markets are barely letting us do what we're doing now. And when we get back to normal interest rates on our debt, yeah. you know, our deficit's going to skyrocket. And, yeah. you know, with three interest rates coming next year and one more this year, and we're so short-term financed in terms of our, our borrowing as a country, ultimately we're going to get bitten uh, by that. And yeah. so, you know, the Republicans right. also need to compromise. You know, the the, well, the Senate was designed to force compromise. That's what the filibuster mm-hmm. was all about. Well, let's leave okay. it there. Senator, we're going to have to cut you off. Thank you so much. The former senator of Oklahoma, Mr. Coburn, he notes Sooners 29, Longhorns 24. This is Bloomberg. Looking at EcoGo on the Bloomberg Tom I see the Empire Manufacturing Index out this morning, coming in higher than expectations. Thirty point two survey, twenty point four. Help me make some sense of this, and then we can get Nairman to wait. Yeah, it's a big deal, and it's really good to have Nairman Barabash with us. Let me describe the chart, and I will put this out on uh, uh, on on Twitter for all of you Bloomberg Radio seeing it first. And you know, I got to say, folks, it's to me a tertiary data point. It's like me too, and. Every single bank has to do this. I believe they do it out of Buffalo uh, for the New York Fed. But the answer is it's got a lot of information to it. It is solid through two standard deviations going back 15 years. It's the first time it's ever done that, which is a good reason to bring in Nariman Baravish, always an optimist with IHS Global Insight. They do terrific uh, uh, work. Nariman, I mean, I don't, re- I, I don't say that often. We're not often I've, quoting I've the got, New York Empire statement. No, but that I've got a series back 15 years that's two standard deviations optimistic. Is the Fed behind? I I don't think so, Tom. I think, um, I mean, this is just sort of corroborates other data that we have that suggests that the economy is on very solid footing. So I think this is, I I don't, you know, we can debate about the the pluses and minuses of various indicators, but I think they're all pointing in the same direction. And I think that's where the Fed's coming from in the end. Is it behind? You know, I don't think so. Up until recently, remember, we were all worried about, you know, the strength of this recovery, but all of a sudden it's starting to look like it's it's doing fairly well. So, no, I, I don't think that's a fair assessment of where the Fed is. I mean, we're not back to the high seen in 2004, David Gura, but we're getting there rapidly. I mean, it's been on a diffusion index basis around zero. We've gone from minus 18 to plus 30, which is a wow move. Nairman, let me ask you what you heard from the the, the chorus of policymakers and bankers who were gathered in Washington uh, last week and and over the weekend. We had, as we've been discussing, the IMF World Bank annual meetings there, the group of 30 banking forum uh, as well. What are the themes that you pulled out of those meetings? Well, I, I read a very interesting piece on Bloomberg this morning that, that suggested there was a split in this conference, that the U.S. policymakers and U.S. bankers were fairly optimistic, whereas European policymakers and bankers were much more cautious. And I think that says something. We've been, we've been doing much better than Europe uh, for a sustained period of time, although we've had our ups and downs, no question about it. Whereas Europe is still yeah. struggling to some extent, their banks are in not as good shape as U.S. banks. And so, so there is a sort of split, if you will. The, the Europeans 
worried is probably the way to say it. And some of it because of you know political developments in, in, in the past few days having to do with Austrian, the Austrian election and so on, Catalonia. Uh, whereas in the U.S., even though, you know, there's been a lot of political uncertainty, the sense is that the economy, the banking sector are all doing fairly well, despite what's going on in Washington. So quite a difference in mood here. Yeah. And I, uh, David Gerard I'd mentioned uh, Catherine Mann of the OECD said, yes, she understood the optimism and uh, it's something that they bring into their OECD report in Paris. But she was very cautious about, all you know, all boats rising and the idea of uh, the cliche of an escape velocity has been had. She really pushed against that. Nerman, how much of, of, of that change in sentiment or uh, uh, bifurcation of sentiment has to do with the regulatory landscape in each of these two places? Do, do you think that there is, uh, broadly speaking, more optimism about the regulatory landscape here in the U.S. than in Europe? You know, David, I think that is a factor. There's no question. And I think bankers and other industries in the U.S. are feeling that the uh, they the, will be facing a friendlier, business-friendlier regulatory environment in, in the next few years compared with the last few years. Whereas in Europe, I think the, the, the sort of the march towards greater regulation is almost unrelenting. Um, so I think that is definitely a, a factor. But I think, especially given that this was a gathering of uh, financiers and mm-hmm. bankers, the health of the U.S. banking system is much better yeah. than the health of the European banking system. Nerman, update your view on investment into next year. Do we actually finally get a lift in corporate investment? I think the answer is a cautious yes. And the reason is that you know, global growth is strong now, stronger than it was a while ago. The dollar has lost some of its strength. Uh, it's come down a bit, although in just the last few days it's, uh, it's gone up a little bit. And so that combination will, will provide uh, a couple of things. One is it'll make overseas profits of U.S. companies uh, uh, greater value. Um, but uh, but that, it also provides an incentive for companies to invest to, to meet uh, foreign demand as well as domestic demand. So our view is those two alone, aside from the internal dynamics of the U.S., will help uh, the capital spending picture brighten a little bit. Now, I don't want to get too carried away with the optimism, but mm-hmm. – um, uh, but hey, as you said at the beginning, I'm a half glass is half full yeah. kind of guy. But <laughs> but but <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I, I think there are a number of key factors that will drive a little better uh, story on on capital oh, spend. Um, let's do this. Let's come back and be totally gloomy with Nerman yeah. Bervish we'll of IHS uh, as we uh, consider where we are in this economy, and of course, all of this front and center for the Fed calendar. Here on uh, the middle of October, I should say, six weeks away, November 1, basically, uh, 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 David, I, I, I'm going to say at this point, a non-event. Uh, I'd love for that to change. December 13th is where all eyes are directed as well. And so we've got two meetings, two meetings. The the next meeting know? is, uh, what, it's the it's Halloween, isn't it? I believe the next November meeting Halloween. Yeah, I'm working on my Willie McChesney Martin Halloween that's, costume, that's which I'll be wearing. Here. All Saint Janet Day, okay. as we call that. <laughs> what a, I, I should say, what a joy to see Stan Fisher at yes, the IMF yes. meetings, his final weekend uh, as vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System. This is Bloomberg. It is good to speak to Nerman Barish, uh, middle of October, setting up for the end of the year and into next year. He's with IHS. What I love about IHS is they usually have three frameworks, their center tendency, their optimistic Nerman Barish tendency, 
And then the gloom tendency wrought by those worried and worried. Is 3% run rate GDP in any of your three tendencies, Nariman? Well, the answer is yes, in the sense that briefly, if there is a fair amount of stimulus that comes out of Washington, uh, I only give that about a 15, 20% probability, but if it comes out of Washington, and if, it, if it's designed in a way that helps infrastructure, it helps capital spending uh, you know, uh, grow at a, at a rapid pace, then we could get to 3%, probably not on a sustained basis, but, but for a, a few quarters. I think that's very much in the cards. But there's a big proviso here. If we get the right kind of stimulus, if we get the right kind of tax cuts, now, what, what does that look like to you? What is the, the right kind of stimulus, the right kind of, of tax cut? Is it, is it anything like what's being bandied about in Washington today? Well, it, as, as you well know, it quickly gets political. Uh, I think in the end, you know, what's really required, you know, as we were talking about in the prior segment, what's really missing, been missing in this recovery is capital spending. You know, the consumer's doing his and her part, uh, but capital spending has been uh, very disappointing in many respects, and in particular spending on all this new technology that's being developed. So, you know, my hope would be uh, the kind of investment uh, uh, encouraging, enhancing policies via the tax code and via other kinds of provisions that might, uh, in fact, bring about this uh, un, uh, sort of un- unleashing of animal spirits, unleashing of, of uh, the desire on the part of businesses to, to invest and invest in particular in, in, in a lot of these new technologies. What we've been seeing is the tech sector is doing really well. I mean, in the sense of productivity growth is good. They're, you know, they're investing in all these new technologies. The rest of the economy, which is by far the biggest part uh, in terms of businesses, has not been. And that's really what we want to change here. I've detected here over these last few weeks even, maybe maybe a few months, last few weeks, uh, more conversation about the role that technology is playing here. Are we, are we seeing a sea change moment here when policymakers are beginning to wrestle with the kind of technological change you're describing? Well, I think the answer is yes. Some of it is positive. Some of it is negative. I mean, I think there is a concern rising in many quarters that the technology is, is playing a bigger role, but also has a bigger responsibility in terms of you know, the news aspects or fake news aspects in terms of, of uh, you know, making sure that we're not squashing competition, a lot of worries about the size of some of these companies. So I think, uh, you know, I mean, technology plays a big role in the tech sector. I'm a big fan of the tech sector. And yet, you know, we have to start to look at some of these issues because they are somewhat troubling. And there, I mean, I... I, I Look at productivity and the, and the overlay of it and all the raging debates. It's something folks are really focusing on as we begin our coverage uh, towards Davos and the World Economic Forum. What part of the productivity mix has your attention? Is any and all, including the new Fed chairman, hope um, – the hope is the word I use – hope that productivity lifts? Well, there's no question that we all hope productivity will lift, and it clearly plays a big role in terms of the overall growth and long-term growth of the economy, and it matters uh, to the Fed a huge amount. I mean, the Fed's done a lot of studies on this very topic over the last uh, 10, 20 years, you know, while Greenspan was there, after he left, and all, so on. Um, so this is crucial. Now, how much the Fed itself can do uh, uh, is, is, is really questionable, in the sense that the you know interest rate policy alone will not do it, uh, a lot depends on the the economic environment. A lot depends on tax policy. 
a lot depends on uncertainty. And this is the uncertainty factor, which I think is a, is a big deal. Policy uncertainty, especially fiscal policy uncertainty, I'm convinced has had a very negative really? effect on capital spending. This is interesting. You, yeah. you, you would wait policy uncertainty as businessmen wait to see what's going on in Washington, and you'd fold that right into the productivity calculation? I think it is definitely a part of it. I'm not saying it's the reason. But I'm, all I'm saying is right now it is a factor because businesses, partly because of you know the, the, the big recession we went through a few years ago, but also partly because of a lot of the toing and throwing on fiscal policy, have been rather cautious um, in terms of what they do. They're not sure, yeah, for example, I'll, the tax I'll, environment that I'll, they're going to face. I'll go with Sorry. it, but isn't a CFO of a company a lot more concerned about the artificial construct known as the yield curve? No, there's, there's no question that financing is is crucial here. But 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 bear with me, Tom. Is you know is, is the interest rates are very low right now, and even if they're going to go up a little bit next year, the financing environment is going to remain quite friendly for a lot of companies. So the question is, so why aren't they spending like gangbusters? And I have to believe there are other factors at play here. And I think I think the policy environment, fiscal policy environment, is partly to blame. I don't I don't want to overemphasize that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying it's partly to blame. Let's look ahead here to, to 2018. As I mentioned, you're out with your, your new outlook, looking ahead to 2018. How does the consumer look at this point, and, and how much uh, of the, the, the health of the U.S. economy is balanced on his shoulders at this point? Well, as, uh, as we were saying earlier, the consumer is crucial here, 70% of the economy. Good news is things are going well. Uh, income growth has been decent. Jobs growth has been decent. Uh, a lot of households have seen their net worth rise, not just because of the stock market, but because of house prices rising. Uh, and if you look at the confidence surveys, you know, consumers, by and large, yeah, it moves up and down month to month, but by and large, they're feeling pretty good about things. So this is good. And I don't see that changing radically in the next year or two unless inflation takes off or, uh, and the Fed has to really step on the brakes very hard. So the good news is I think the the consumer is the bedrock, basically, of the of the U.S. economy. And, and that foundation right now is pretty solid. I'll ask you lastly here just about the, the dollar and, and dollar weakness and the role that's playing in, in, in your forecast as you look ahead to 2018. Do you, do you have a clear sense of what this administration's dollar policy is, and do you think we're going to see sustained weakness? In a, in a word, no. I don't, I don't have a good sense of where this administration is coming from because they've They've blown kind of hot and cold a little bit on this. I think in the end they wouldn't mind seeing the dollar a little bit weaker um, because it'll certainly help, help exports. It'll help narrow the the trade deficit uh, in, in the United States. Uh, but again, there's not a lot that either the Fed or the uh, the Treasury can do about the dollar. The dollar is very much market driven. Unlike other economies like China's, we don't control our currency, so we have to live with the. Uh, that the ups and downs of the market, and up until very recently, people were dollar bullish, but then they, that turned a little bit, partly because of the strong growth overseas. People started to shift yeah. their focus to other parts of the world, so the dollar weakened them. Yeah. That was a missed call of the summer by so many people, and of course, as we wander into a 75 or 80 degree autumn, we keep waiting for uh, the turn dollar stronger here. Uh, over the recent days. The DXY 93.189 shows that one-week, two-week dollar strength we've seen. Nerman Berevish, thank you so much. David, that was great. He's with IHS, I should say. That was great. I mean, just to parse away. You, you can't do that enough. No. You, don't, you can't do it all the time, but you got to keep your eye on the basic uh, 
economy dynamics. And I don't have a strong view, 3%, 2.8%. We'll have to see that. Mm. that the empire statistic that David Gura mentioned earlier was uh, buoyant, to say the least. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.